Hello, and welcome to the April 21st, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. For the past three years, I've been working with a program here in Denver, mentoring a high school student who is set to graduate in a few short weeks and head off to college. Recently, we had our annual volunteer training, during which we spent some time discussing mindset and how important it is for us as a mentor to help our students adopt a growth mindset in their approach to academics and to life. If you're not familiar with this term, it comes from a book by a psychologist, Carol Dweck, called Mindset, wherein she describes the two common mindsets that human beings tend to gravitate to. First, there is the fixed mindset, and then there is the growth mindset. People with a fixed mindset believe intelligence, talent, and other qualities are innate and unchangeable. If they're not good at something, they typically think they'll never be good at it. By contrast, a growth mindset means you believe intelligence and talent can be developed with practice and effort. We were shown a nice image that helps solidify these two contrasting mindsets by putting statements that people might utter if they adhered to one or the other. For example, a person with a fixed mindset might say, quote, failure is the limit of my abilities, end quote. I'm either good at something or I'm not. When I'm frustrated, I give up, and those kinds of things. Whereas a person with a growth mindset might say, failure is an opportunity to grow. I can learn to do anything I want. My efforts and attitudes determine my abilities. And you can clearly hear the difference between these two. And I imagine you may even hear yourself described by one of those two mindsets. I know that for me, with respect to triathlon anyways, I was very much in a fixed mindset for the longest time. I was really stuck in my way of thinking when it came to my own abilities and to what the ceiling was for my performance. I'm glad to say that Dweck believes strongly that it's possible for someone to change their mindset and move from a fixed to growth perspective. Now, this is by no means an easy thing to do, and it's not going to happen overnight, but it can happen. I know that for me, in triathlon anyways, it took baby steps and a fair amount of time. Initially, I moved from a, from a position of failure is the limit of my opportunities to failure is an opportunity to grow. I can't tell you exactly when that happened or even how I did it, but I just know that I did. I also know that it probably had a lot to do with what I was saying to others. I think that I was telling others that they could grow from their failures before I started to listen to my own words and then began to believe that myself. After that, the other pieces just kind of slowly fell into place, and now there's no question in my mind that I am firmly in the growth mindset space. Interestingly, I don't think that I have as much of a fixed mindset in the rest of my personal and professional life as I do in, or as I did in triathlon. But there is no question that adopting the growth mindset in multisport was integral to helping me achieve success in the sport. And I'm very confident that it has spilled over into other areas of my life as well. Once again, demonstrating the benefits that this sport can confer on us if we stay with it. And so I challenge each and all of you who are listening, which of the mindsets resonates most with you? and who you are in triathlon and in life in general. Are you fixed or growth? If you are fixed, what can you do to start purposely making changes in your thinking to move to a more productive growth mindset? And for those of you who believe you're already there, do you know people in your circle who are fixed? And if so, how can you model the growth mindset and help them join you in that more positive and productive space? 
I've talked on this program several times about the importance of the mental aspect of training and racing, and it seems to me that this is just one excellent example of how it can come to bear on our outlook and performance, as well as in the rest of our lives. On the show today, I'm going to answer another listener question that is very appropriate given the start of the triathlon season in North America. And that question is, can swimming in open water make you sick? While we know that there are a lot of dangers incumbent in swimming in open water, and I'm going to discuss those in this segment as well, many people will report coming down with a gastrointestinal illness or skin rashes after a race and insist that this had something to do with the water that they swam in. Well, are they right to impugn our rivers, lakes, reservoirs, and even oceans in this way, or is it a mere coincidence? Well, I look at the evidence, and that's coming up shortly. Later, I'm excited to bring to you a conversation that I had recently with the executive director of the USA Triathlon Foundation, Thomas Lindbergh. Thomas shares with us the history and mission of the foundation, as well as some of the great things that they have done over the years. And that conversation is coming up in just a short while. Before all of that, I want to take a moment once again to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program and in doing, get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. For North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift for you in the form of a pretty cool Boko Tridoc podcast running hat. And members of this Patreon group recently got a bonus episode with Scott Tyndall, the guest on episode 116. We went on to talk a little bit more about nutrition and his approach to different kinds of supplements, and you can hear that if you sign up for Patreon and be a supporter. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash podcast and see if being a supporter is something that works for you and maybe get access to my very cool gift as well. And as always, thanks so much in advance just for considering. With the beginning of the North American triathlon season heralded by 70.3 events in Oceanside and Galveston a few short weeks ago, we can expect to see a growing number of events in the coming weeks and months through the end of September when numbers will begin to drop off again. One of the questions that I have been asked recently relates to the swimming component of triathlon and specifically to how worried athletes should be about becoming ill from swimming in polluted waters. This question might seem a bit overly fearful and perhaps even be something that most athletes don't spend too much time thinking about, but I could tell you, as someone whose home race has a swim in the notoriously, uh, shall we say, not-so-clean Boulder Reservoir, and who frequently sees posts on the Facebook page dedicated to that event in the weeks following the race, raising the question as to whether or not anyone else got diarrhea in the days following the event— this is a subject that is encountered by some, thought of by many, and asked by at least a couple of me. And so, I thought that it would be worthwhile to look at whether or not there is any evidence on this subject in order to determine what the risks are for swimming in open water, how athletes might protect themselves, and what race directors are faced with in the weeks and days leading up to an event. Now, I want to be clear, I'm dedicating this segment to my friend and friend of the podcast, Joe Wilson and I'm going to title it, The Swim is Cancelled, so that not only will he listen, he's going to link to it forevermore in all of his Facebook posts where he says just that. I hope you're listening, Joe. Okay, so the first question that we need to answer here is simple. Is there any evidence that we can turn to in order to get a sense of the scope of this problem? To which the answer is yes, though the body of evidence isn't really huge. 
The second and more important question is, what exactly are the dangers of swimming in bodies of open water? Unfortunately, the answer to that is there's quite a few, and I like to think of them as fitting somewhat neatly into a few different categories. First, there are those things that are specific to the swimmer and have little or no relation to the water itself. The one example in this category would be sudden cardiac events, which I've discussed before. These are, for the most part, unrelated to anything to do with the water itself, though there is some evidence that sudden cardiac death may be more likely in colder water, though this is by no means certain. Whatever the case, we know that triathlon deaths are more likely to occur during the swim, with some studies showing that of all deaths in triathlon, close to 80% occur in the water. And to have a bad outcome when they do happen during the swim is all but certain. But the quality of the water and the characteristics of the water really don't play much of any role in how often or when these unfortunate events happen. Now, some researchers have posited that the race itself is somehow the key or the linchpin to these events happening because we don't see a lot of sudden cardiac deaths when swimmers are training. But I would say that we're probably not seeing sudden cardiac deaths during swim training being reported nearly as much as we're seeing them reported in races when they're much more visible and much more likely to be reported. So sudden cardiac death may be happening during training, but probably not as frequently. Someone goes out and swims in open water and is much more likely to have something happen because they're racing than when they're training. So I will grant you that sudden cardiac death during a swim, much more likely during a race than in training. A second category of hazards related to open water swimming can be thought of as environmental, and this one can be subcategorized into conditions and marine animals. For conditions, we need to think first and foremost of temperature. Most of the time, this is going to be low temperatures in which various health issues are more common. Obviously, swimming in colder water for longer swims put athletes at risk for hypothermia or low body temperature, and this can be dangerous if it gets particularly low. But other medical conditions are also more likely when the water is colder. For example, exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, or asthma, is a frequently reported issue among swimmers. And while it can be induced in warm water pools because of the chlorine and other chemicals used to keep the water clean, in open water swimming, it is significantly more common when the water has a lower temperature. Swimming-induced pulmonary edema is another medical entity that is vastly overhyped and likely nowhere near as frequent an occurrence as has been made out to be the case, but still, when it does happen, it seems to be much more common in colder water environments than in warm. If you want to know more about this entity, have a listen to episode 18, and I'll post a link in the show notes to that episode. Cold water issues are obviously much more pronounced with lower water temperatures, and with USAT and Ironman modifying the rules of competition in the last couple of years to take into account the dangers associated with cold water swimming, it is now, fortunately, much less common to have these kinds of problems, as commonly as we might have in the past, since races are not taking place in the types of temperatures that we used to see done previously. Still, even in water temperatures that are in the high 50s to low mid 60s, it is possible to see some of these medical issues, and athletes need to be prepared. Wearing thermal wetsuits and thermal caps can be, use, can be helpful. Making sure that you expose yourself to the water before the race start and then get a warm-up swim whenever possible are both great ideas and ways to ensure that you will avoid the cold water shock that can precipitate some of the medical issues that I described. Unfortunately, 
more and more large events like 70.3 and Ironman races are not allowing access to the water nor warm-up swims for age groupers. And I continue to question the wisdom of this when we know that colder water is more likely associated with adverse outcomes and when Ironman itself puts on their website the importance of doing these things as part of their swim smart start. In those kinds of events, whenever you can, not get a uh, swim warm-up, and whenever you can't get access to the cold water before the start, make sure you enter the water slowly and start your swim with low intensity. Let your body adjust to the cold, and as you build into the effort, you're going to be less likely to have any issues. Now, I've spent all of this time talking about the potential dangers of cold water swimming, but in this day and age of a warming planet, we really have to acknowledge the other side of the coin as well. Warmer temperatures can also cause problems for open water swimmers, particularly if the swim is long. Because warmer water will not dissipate heat as well, the potential to develop hyperthermia, or elevated body temperature, becomes very real once water temperatures exceed about 85 degrees or so. For the most part, 70.3 in Ironman races don't actually take place in any waters with such high temperatures, but with continued climatic warming, this kind of water temperature may become a reality sooner rather than later, and race directors may have to consider what to do if that becomes the case. Warm water also causes issues in that it promotes the growth of microorganisms, a subject that I'm going to get to in a little bit. There are other conditions in the water that can affect swimmers and potentially be hazardous. In most cases, these will be specific to the venue. For example, surf can, p- can pose a problem for entry and or exiting the water, and for less experienced swimmers can result in injury because the swimmers can be thrown about in rough surf. More dangerous, though, are currents, riptides, and even undertows, all of which have the potential to fatigue swimmers and even result in drownings. For the most part, we rely on race directors to keep us aware and safe from these kinds of conditions, but anytime you enter the water, you should have some understanding of the local environments and any potential hazardous conditions. Marine animals are the next subcategory related to the environment and are, again, in general unique to each venue. While most triathletes are certainly going to think with a certain amount of trepidation of the potential for a great white shark attack when swimming in the ocean for Ironman Western Australia, the reality is the most commonly encountered marine animal that causes issues for open water swimming is the much less impressive but much more annoying jellyfish. Jellyfish are ubiquitous in bodies of salt water, and when encountered in large numbers, as they frequently are during events like Ironman Maryland, they can make for a fairly unpleasant hour plus of swimming. I should point out that jellyfish are passive in this matter. That is to say, it's us who are trespassing in their environment, and they're not seeking us out as we do our best to swim from point A to point B. Rather, as we pass by and strike their transparent and very flimsy bodies, they're just defending themselves by releasing a large number of microscopic poison darts into our skin. And it's those wee little darts that cause the quite intense stinging pain. Fortunately, like everything else in Iron Man, the pain is temporary, but no less distressing. Other marine animals to be aware of include urchins, that if stepped on when exiting the water will most definitely end a race right then and there, and of course the aforementioned great white sharks that, while not really a threat to triathletes, bear mentioning again, only if a reminder that they're really, really cool. Seriously, I went cage diving in South Africa with them, and and wow, just wow. 
Sorry, I got a little off track there. Okay, we're on to the next category of potential dangers to swimmers in open water. And this is really the one that precipitated the question to me in the first place, and that is infectious agents. We've known for decades that our bodies of fresh water can be a place where we can catch all manner of horrible infections. In the early part of the 20th century, right through until the 50s, it wasn't uncommon for a family visit to the lake to be ruined by cases of polio among children. The specter of that disease is even becoming an issue again, now as more and more people shun the effective and safe vaccines that help push that disease out of our collective memory. But much more common than polio are the bacterial illnesses associated with runoff from farmland into lakes and reservoirs that are used for our triathlons. I mentioned earlier the Boulder Reservoir at the top of this segment. That body of water is surrounded by farmland, and it isn't uncommon for the coliform count to get dangerously high at times throughout the spring and summer. And it's that bacterial count that is the most commonly associated with all of the illnesses that swimmers can develop after open water swimming. The most common, of course, are the gastrointestinal illnesses, consisting of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, which are contracted when swimmers swallow some water while swimming, if that water contains high amounts of bacteria. This same bacteria are also responsible for ear infections, so-called swimmer's ear. Both of these types of infections are unlikely to occur during the event, but rather in the days to weeks following it. There are also some skin conditions that can occur from open water swimming, but these are erroneously attributed to infection. Swimmer's itch is an eruption on the skin with tiny raised red blemishes that are quite itchy and last for a couple of days. But rather than an infection, this is actually an allergic reaction to various microbes in the water that are usually associated with birds in the area. Finally, I wanted to spend a moment talking about algae. I mentioned earlier the fact that waters are warming and that this is leading to issues for race directors. And one of these issues is the toxic algae blooms that are a direct result of these warmer temperatures. When certain types of algae burst into bloom, they secrete toxins that are dangerous to fish and birds and potentially to humans. And for that reason, have resulted in several swim cancellations over the past few years. But returning to bacteria for a moment, it turns out that one of the main things that can influence bacterial counts in open water swims, and consequently infection rates, is actually rainfall. And that's probably counterintuitive, because you would usually think rain would be good, because it would dilute whatever's in the water, and would actually add a layer of fresh water on top of whatever was there in the first place. The fact is, there have been a couple of really high-quality studies in the last few years looking at gastrointestinal infection rates in events, both open water swim events and triathlons when there was and wasn't rainfall proximate to the event. And in all cases, a recent rainfall in the days leading up to an event is significantly associated with infection rates. And this is because as rain falls on surrounding farmland, it picks up fertilizer and animal fecal matter as it runs towards rivers, lakes, reservoirs, or even the ocean. And the coliform counts can then be significantly higher for several days after it rains. With those higher counts are higher rates of infections. So it's a good idea that if you're racing and you're racing in an area that has a lot of farmland, keep an eye on the weather, wherever your race is, and know that if it rains in the days before your race, especially if it rains a lot, the risk for infection is going to be higher. And so what is an athlete to do in order to mitigate their risks from all of this? Well, as I said initially, we kind of count on our race directors to keep us protected, but that is very much a double-edged sword. On the one hand, 
Those poor men and women are under an enormous amount of pressure to put on a race that includes a swim. They are often vilified if a swim is cancelled. If they err on the side of racing when coliform counts are just below the cutoff, it's not like they're going to face any blowback when random people get sick several days later. This is not to say that a race director would ever willingly put race participants in danger. I absolutely do not believe that would ever happen. But I would bet that just like races seem to be somehow wetsuit legal after several days of water temperature clearly over the 76 degree threshold, I wouldn't be surprised if race directors face an enormous amount of pressure to have a swim go forward and will do so if it's just barely okay when it comes to coliform counts. And again, if it's barely okay, then they're okay to do that. For race participants, there really isn't a lot you can do in those circumstances. I've already discussed how to manage temperature-related issues. Being aware of local water conditions is also of paramount importance. You can do your best, if the coliform counts are a concern, to try and not swallow water when you're concerned about recent rainfall, but that is honestly very much an involuntary response, and one that will likely only be so effective. And look, I mean, I've been on the other side of that as an athlete watching the coliform counts because you can do that in Boulder. You can actually look up the website for the Boulder Reservoir and see what the coliform counts are. And I've been paying attention to that and hoping like heck it's going to stay just under the cutoff level so that the swim will go on. So I very much understand the pressure that the race directors are under. And as an athlete, I understand the risk benefits of swimming in waters that are just under that cutoff, and thus far, I've been willing to take that risk. It's going to be best to just deal with any issues that arise in the following few days, because if you do take ill, in the vast majority of cases, it's fairly self-limited, though in some cases, antibiotics are needed. Most of the time, symptomatic treatment is all that's needed, and the illness is going to run its course, but see your doctor if you're unsure. I want to emphasize again that illnesses of this type arise in the days to a week after the race, and not during the event, so don't attribute gastrointestinal illnesses or distress on the run to poor quality water during the swim. Also, I want to emphasize that this tends to affect a minimal number of participants. It tends to be quite small. In the studies that I referenced earlier, the number of those who reported gastrointestinal infections was 8% when there wasn't rainfall, and then 42% when there was. But this was a swim that was taking place very close to a sewage outlet, so this water was not very clean even when there wasn't rainfall. Under normal circumstances, the number of people taking ill in waters that are not close to a sewer and in waters even close to farmland is significantly less than 8% of participants. It's probably in the order of less than 2 to 3%. So I think that you can take away from this that the likelihood of getting ill is going to be pretty low in most cases, but it's not going to be zero. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll send it to me. You can drop me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or you can join the private TriDoc podcast group on Facebook, where you can answer a couple of questions to gain entry and join the conversation there and ask your questions, which I will be sure to consider and answer on the podcast if appropriate. My guest on the podcast today is Thomas Lenneberg. Thomas is the executive director of the USA Triathlon Foundation, a position that he's filled since April of last year. 
He was previously USA Triathlon's Director of Marketing and Communications and oversaw strategic communications, branding, creative services, digital marketing, social media, and video production for the national governing body. Prior to his time with USA Triathlon, Thomas spent nearly eight years with the Arizona State University Athletics Department, most recently as the director of the Sun Devil Club Annual Fund. He has graciously agreed to set some time aside today to chat with me about the USAT Foundation from his office in Colorado Springs. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I wonder if first you could just start by giving us a brief overview of exactly what the foundation is and when it came into existence. Yes, certainly. The foundation came to existence in 2014, so still relatively young in the nonprofit space and was volunteer-led for a number of years. And and we certainly thank the the groundwork that was laid by, by those volunteers, a number of them that are still involved with us today. So matured over the years and have grown in staff and in commitment and resources to where it is today with a staff of six of us. And we're very ingrained with USA Triathlon. So we're the charitable arm of USA Triathlon. USA Triathlon is a 501c3 in its own right, but the foundation is the one charged with raising money on its behalf and on behalf of the broader triathlon multi-sport community. So we share offices, we share services with USA Triathlon, but we are the ones that are out there raising money to support all the great things that they were able to do and that so many others in our community are doing as well. And could you give me a sense of most organizations like your own, they have a mission statement. I know yours does. I've seen it on the website, but maybe for the listeners, if you could give us a sense of what is the mission for the USAT Foundation? Yeah, in the past, the mission had been to transform lives through sport. And so that is still something that, that we hang on to and is, is a rallying cry for us. Our official mission statement we recently updated when we launched our 2028 strategic plan. So we aligned our mission statement to be with USA Triathlons. So it's to provide resources that empower members of the triathlon multi-sport community to reach their full potential. So we wanted it to be Align with USA Triathlon as we continue to have that relationship be one where all of us are working together and make it very clear to the community that that we are one and the same and that we're not two separate entities, but entities that work together to serve the larger triathlon multi-sport community. And what are some of the main programs that the foundation sponsors? Yeah, so everything we do aligns with our three pillars. So it's encourage youth participation inspire pathways to access and inclusion, which is our pillar that supports our diversity, equity, inclusion, and access initiatives and programs, and then ignite Olympic and Paralympic dreams. So programs around that, we we certainly raise money and then grant it back out. So that's a big piece of what we do. And and we'd love to get into into the granting process too, as we talk through this, that's certainly an important aspect of of what we do. And then beyond that, we... um, do a number of events. So we have a fantasy camp that we do every year. We do VIP events at our two national championships, multi-sport national championships, festival, and USAT nationals, which encompasses our sprint and Olympic distance national championships and our zone three youth and junior nationals. We host the Hall of Fame Gala every year. That's again in conjunction with that USA Triathlon Nationals event in Milwaukee. And then beyond that, we we have our ambassador team. So really cool a program where we have almost 100 ambassadors this year from all across the country, all different ages, experiences, and backgrounds. And they're charged with raising money on our behalf. And so we let them do that in whatever way they'd like. They could do you know 
fundraisers through Facebook and through personal email. They can host events. They can have booths at events and races across the country, various, again, ways to raise money at the grassroots level. And that group's already raised almost $60,000 just three months into the year. So really cool opportunity that, that anybody can get involved with. And then beyond that, we're raising more money for the NCAA program. So we, we just announced that this past year in 2022 that we'd reached the 40th school to kick that next process off in terms of women's triathlon becoming an NCAA championship sport. So we raise money both on behalf of, of schools and universities, those that are already sponsoring women's triathlon at the NCAA level, and then they need some financial help for various reasons. And then also schools and universities that are interested in starting the program and again, need help for various startup costs or other, other things. And then we also have an NIL collective, so a name, image, and likeness collective that directly supports women student-athletes at the NCAA level. We're the first national governing body to launch that collective. And so we collect, we raise money, and then we'll have a, an application that, that comes through for current NCAA women student-athletes to apply to, and then we'll grant that money to those student-athletes at the start of the 2023 NCAA women's triathlon season. So that's, that's the bulk of sort of more programmatic stuff. And then of course, we're, we're raising money through various ways, again, to support those grants that we do back out uh, through our three pillars. So I'd love to drill down to some of that, because a lot of what you said sounds super interesting. I'd love to try and get down to maybe a little more detail. So I understand really where the foundation is having tangible impacts. Tell, tell me about something in the DEI pillar that the foundation has helped fund and how that has resulted in some kind of outcomes. I would be happy to. No, certainly something we're very passionate about. I guess to take one step back, historically, the foundation, that second pillar had been focused on adaptive para-athletes and certainly an important focus and, and one that we we still care deeply about. But what we found really over, I mean, over the last 18 months, at least more since I've been, been heavily involved, I can't speak to, to the experiences before that. Um, but there's so many organizations, individuals out there that are, are that spread the breadth of underrepresented populations. So whether that's veterans, whether that's people of color, whether that's gender orientation, different socioeconomic classes, whatever those those underrepresented populations are, there's a huge need for that in our sport. And of course, anybody who is involved with our sport knows and appreciates that and, and shares that like mind that we want the sport to, to be representative of, of what the United States looks like. And so we expanded the pillar to cover the, the broader spectrum of, of the need that's out there. So a couple things that, that fall into that category would be organizations in, in Brooklyn or in Chicago, and we can dive into specifics around some of those, but organizations that are doing great things um, with youth have been ones that we've we funded this past year specifically. And so a cool one that, that we really like is I Try Girls. So they're based out of Long Island in New York. And so they do programming and, and training and in a lead up to, to races for young women in Long Island area who otherwise wouldn't have access to. And so through grants from us, they're able to do some things that they certainly would not have been able to do. Another one we've helped a lot with is Kids That Try Cleveland. So they work with diverse students, grades 6 through 12 typically, and they get them again swimming, biking, and running. And then of course, all these programs Again, are also teaching these life lessons that, that we know triathlon teaches with self-discipline, sportsmanship, teamwork, etc. So we're, able, we're really able to impact that holistic journey of, of what being a triathlete really is. As, as we all know, it, it's so much more than just the, the, the swim start and the finish line. It, it's all those sort of unknown virtues that come from being involved in our sport. 
Yeah. How, how large are these grants and, and what are they being used for at those local levels? Uh, some of those, some of those projects you mentioned sound really fascinating. I'm curious uh, how much money are they? You don't have to give me exact amounts, but I'm just curious how much money in, in the ballpark. Cause some of these grants are for and if they're using them to buy equipment, if they're using them to hire staff, where, where does, the, how does the money get spent? Yeah, it's anywhere from typically $1,500 up to, to 4,000. So we are there. They're not huge grants, but a lot of times that that's what these organizations or individuals need or to supplement additional revenue streams that they may have. And yeah, it covers really the whole spectrum of, of what they do. And, and we have a pretty robust grant application process that outlines where the funds are going to go. So to your point, some of it's equipment, some of it is coaching, some of it is travel or, or, or logistics around getting athletes to and from their training camps or to events. Some of it is the actual creation of programming. So a lot of what we focused on here heading into into our 2023 grant cycle will we'll award a number of youth-related grants here in early April. Our partnerships with local school districts or other community organizations. So some of that grant funding goes towards setting up those partnerships and, and providing infrastructure or other needs that go with, with those types of strategic partnerships. And I know that you also have a mission to support potential elite athletes who are on a, a journey potentially to the Olympic. How, how does the USA Triathlon Foundation work in that capacity? Yeah, we have a couple different ways that we, we've done historically and continue to do. So one of them is, is grants directly to individual athletes. So we gave out a number of those this past year in 2022. And that's typically to that U23 up to late 20s age, where if they're not on the national team, they're not getting funding directly from USA Triathlon, and they're not making enough on the prize money side. So it's sort of that gap, and how do you how do you get funding to do the things that you want to do? And as we know, it's it's not cheap to fly all over the world and race in these events and, and have the right equipment and the training and, and the support staff that goes into it. Um, so direct grants to these individuals to help them, whether again that's through travel, whether it's for equipment. We have a number of para athletes on the development side that, that we gave some funds to last year because they needed X equipment or they need to do X that they couldn't get to do because, you know, those costs are, are exorbitant compared to compared to other athletes. And then the other side of it is is providing grants to create programs through USA Triathlon um, that allow that support. So so a recent one that, that we're really excited about is the creation of the Mallow Junior U23 national team. So this was an opportunity to provide funding to up-and-coming elite athletes at that junior U23 level that have never had that type of funding before. And so this allows them to, to really focus on the sport a bit more and then, of course, receive the funds that they, that they need to, to continue to explore the sport at a high level. When you look forward, you've talked a couple of times about the year ahead. I'm curious what kind of challenges you perceive lying ahead. I keep hearing stories about how triathlon, one day triathlon's in decline, another day triathlon seems to be a very healthy sport. I'm curious for the foundation, what challenges do you see in this year and beyond? Yeah, I think we're certainly bullish on, on the sport and, and like where it's headed. And, and we think we've seen that through through various data points and, and through what we've done with, with USA Triathlon on that side and certainly excited about the opportunities around youth and, and juniors and, and the young adult group that historically has been one that, that we've all focused on and, and, and understand the importance of growing that demographic in our sport. I think challenge-wise, I think awareness continues to be 
to be an issue and one that we're continuing to focus on. And another reason why we're we're so appreciative of this opportunity and, and, and this chance to, to tell our story. But just reaching those, reaching every athlete that we can. We've found that that when we reach athletes and when we tell them our mission and we tell them what we do and we, we explain where the money goes and the impact they can have, they're usually pretty quick to help us out and, and at whatever level they're comfortable helping us with. So it's how can we reach that many people, 400,000 athletes with a staff of six. Right? It, it, it can be hard to reach that many people and there's not a ton of them that live in Colorado Springs. So it's just trying to get in front of as many people as we can and, and tell our story and, and share what we're doing is I think one piece of it. I think Paris is is not a challenge, but certainly an opportunity, but one that, that we need to, to be prepped for. The, the Olympic Games come up, Olympic and Paralympic Games come up quick. So as we look ahead a year from now, what can we do now to, to leverage those Paris Games and use the, when the world's focused on, on our sport? And we certainly saw that in Tokyo, especially around the mixed relay piece where we had people coming up to us on the street uh, who had knew nothing about the sport, but said, wow, I didn't know it was so short and exciting. I didn't know... There was a team component. There was so much fun. I was standing on my couch cheering. How can we? How can we capture those moments and turn them into moments that that drive fundraising dollars and drive impact for us? So certainly planning ahead to that, and then even further beyond the planning for LA 2028 for us needs to start now. And so there, there's work being done on the back end of that right now. But stuff that we need to do now to capitalize a year from now and six years from now that we need to continue to work on. And I think lastly, there's so much need out there. And we're seeing that with our grant applications and in just conversations in general. People want to start youth races. They want to start youth clubs, but maybe they're not making money from it. So how do they do it in a way that that doesn't put them in a financial heart? How do we continue to your previous point, empower these organizations, individuals that, you know, really out of the kindness of their heart and, and, and a love for the sport are creating programs and initiatives for diversity, equity, inclusion, and access, how do we continue to, to empower them and uplift them? And how do we continue to provide individual support to, to adaptive athletes? How do we continue to um, help all these areas of support that we need? And a lot of that just comes down to the more dollars we fundraise and the more resources we have, the more we can grant out. So when we When we look at success for us, of course, we look at dollars raised and we look at donor count and your sort of standard fundraising metrics. But at the end of the day, we want to grant out as much money as we can. So we'll end up, we've committed to granting out $640,000 this year in 2023. We want to get to a point where we're at least granting out a million dollars. And of course, we want to continue to move above and beyond that. But but that's how we measure success is the money that we're able to give back out for, for to the community and to initiatives and to campaigns and programs. So... So I'm curious if you're giving out 640,000 and the average grant is anywhere between 1,500 and 4,000, is that to say that there's about 600, I'm just ballparking about 600 grants given out? No, it's not. It's not really apples to apples like that. The the community grants make up a portion of that 640, but other ones go towards for the the Junior U23, the Mallow Junior U23 national team, that's going to be a larger dollar amount than, than these individual grants. Oh, Project yeah. Podium is an area that, that's also funded through donation donated dollars. So that takes up a larger piece of it. So it's not it's not all sorted out through through these grassroots grants. Got it. Where does most of the foundation funding come from? Is it small dollar donations? Are there large gifts that are coming in? Yeah, the bulk of it, and this has been more of a, a shift in the last 18 months, it's been it's been large dollar gifts uh, from a small amount of donors. And that's not surprising. That, that's sort of typical for, for a nonprofit. So the bulk of it is coming from, 
from large dollar amounts, six figure, high five, six figure dollar donor donations. But we had 3,800 donors this past year. And so as that number continues to grow, that will only raise raise the amount that we're able to, to give out. So we're really excited about that piece of it. And we think if you can harness dollar, whatever dollar amount it might be from an even larger piece of the, the triathlon community that, that we help and serve, then we'll end up raising a lot of money from those groups as well. So usually how on the, on the, on the younger foundation side, so I had the, the big, the, the larger donors come in first and then the annual, annual dollars from everybody else. And from, from membership donation tip-ins, event tip-ins, 50, hundred, $250 a year from other people that adds up really quick when you start to get more and more people involved. So, so we're really excited about the direction that that can go. And you mentioned earlier the ambassador program. I'd love to get back to that and talk a little bit more in detail. Could you tell us how do people go about becoming an ambassador? What's involved? What is provided to them? And what are the expectations? Yeah. So we have an application process. This past year, we opened it in October. And so we did the initial round of, of applicants then, but then we keep that application open throughout the year. So we want anybody who who is able to join to have that opportunity to and not just have it an open and closed date. So it's open to, to anybody. We do ask for an application just to to sort of do an initial vetting and, and you know get a sense of, of where people are and where they're coming from on that side. But then they're asked to raise $1,000. And so with that, we have a $250 sort of team donation to kick off being a part of it. And so with that, you get a foundation ambassador branded kit. And then you also get sort of what we've dubbed a, a welcome pack, for lack of a better term. But that's that's collateral materials that people can use to to fundraise, to, to thank their donors, sort of all the things that you would need to be set up for success. And then from there, based on different giving levels that you hit, you receive additional benefits above and beyond what those are. And so we, we have monthly Zoom calls with the ambassadors. We have an ambassador leadership team, so it's very much athlete driven. And so we have various members of USA Triathlon leadership, our board of directors and trustees, other guests sort of throughout the year to come on and, and talk about what's going on in the sport and, and where the, the impact can be. And then some of those benefits, it's anywhere from apparel to VIP access tickets, at, at our Hall of Fame gala, promo code or, or dollar discounts on Fantasy Camp, sort of exclusive type stuff like that. And then, yeah, that's that's the bulk of it. Um, yeah, and I'm curious, what, what did your top ambassador raise last year? I think they were right around seven thousand. Nice. Yeah, so no, so there's 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 a few there's a handful that are really doing it really well, and then another group that are also doing very well. And I think we've increase the engagement and increase the resources we provided this year. And so we're seeing, we're seeing a lot more raising a lot of money as we've seen by the success they've had just three months into the year. Yeah, that's outstanding. So uh, Thomas, where can people find out more about the foundation, about the ambassador program and how can people get involved? Are there other things that they can do besides the ambassador? And of course, where can they donate? Yes, of course. The most important piece though. No, impact is most important. But no, usatriathlonfoundation.org is our website. So a lot of this information is listed on there, as well as the events and the programs that we do. Certainly donating online through there. You can navigate your way to our donation page from that that landing page. is a great opportunity. Certainly sending in checks and, and any of that stuff to call us on the phone are great ways to, to also donate. Info at usatriathlonfoundation.org is, is sort of our catch-all email that we monitor daily. So that's another opportunity. And then, you know, 
just giving me a call, sending me an email. I share my my email and my my cell openly, and I'm happy to to chat with anybody at any time on what they can do. And then we have our development officers. We have four of them, or I should say five, that are spread out across the country. So we have one in one in California, one in in Texas, and one in Indianapolis or outside of Chicago, and then two that are are based out of here that do some traveling. So certainly those are great resources too. And in the as somebody that those are people that can go visit with individuals that are in their various regions and have those sort of face-to-face conversations. And then certainly at our events, we'll have a VIP area presence, as I said before, at our two national championship events. And then at Legacy Triathlon this year, we'll also be be present there. Um, so those are great opportunities to to get involved. And the dollars spent on, on those types of things all go back to support the foundation and come with some benefits and food and drink and, and a nice gift and all that that they give you a little something too for your donation. But then we always tell people just being advocates. We want we want people to donate again at whatever level they're comfortable doing. If you're out there advocating for the work we're doing and advocating for the impact and and telling people that these opportunities exist, that's worth as much too. And is really important and really shows the power of our community when when they're hearing from their peers and their fellow athletes and, and from whether if, if you're a coach, you're telling your clients that if you're a race director and you're sharing that with your athletes, if you're, you're a club and you're sharing it with your members, um, that's all that that goes a really long way. So it isn't always just coming from the governing body and in the foundation attached to the governing body. Well, that's all really great information, Thomas. And I really want to thank you for all of the hard work you guys are doing over there. And I'm sure that I have probably had contact with some of your beneficiaries without even recognizing it. It sounds like you've had very uh, big impact in the in the sport of triathlon. So thank you for that. And of course, thank you for taking some time out of your day to join me on the podcast and talk about the excellent work that the foundation is doing. For anybody who's interested in the ambassador program or anything else that we've talked about today, I'm going to include links to the Triathlon Foundation website, as well as to Thomas's cell phone and his email address, because apparently that is all widely available. So that'll all be in the show notes. I hope that you'll take a look and I hope that you will get involved somehow, even if it just means making a a donation, because obviously that would be very much appreciated. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private Tridoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridotcoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. 
The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.